Hey there, and thanks for tuning in. I've added this note to the beginning of my most recent and highest downloaded episodes to let you know of a few changes and hopefully avoid any confusion for you as listeners. You will hear me call the show Life After Business as well as reference various ventures I've been a part of over the years. When I started the show, I originally named it Life After Business because I was on a mission to learn everything I wish I would have known before we sold our family business back in 2014. And after 200 episodes and Tons of information that I've learned. I finally decided to change the name to better reflect me, the content, and the guests. One of the biggest lessons I've learned is business owners and entrepreneurs who were the happiest and most successful, in my mind, didn't focus only on sucking all the cash out of the company, and they knew the business was going to eventually continue on without them at some point in time. They literally knew exactly what they wanted from their business long term and why. They intentionally focused on building a valuable company so they could have the freedom of choices to do what they wanted from the business. So they focused on strategies that would grow value long term and give them the freedom to choose. You can learn more about the name change, my major lessons, and our definition of intentional growth in episode 200. Enjoy the episode that you're listening to right now, and thanks for being a listener. Welcome to Life After Business, the podcast that helps you understand how to increase the value of your business, what your company is worth, and what your exit options are. Host Ryan Tansom and his guests give you all the information you need to get clarity and control over your business and take pride in a valuable company that gives you freedom and choices to exit on your terms. Thanks for tuning back in, giving me your time. I guarantee today is going to be an episode you're going to like. It's episode 182, and my guest today's name is David Horsager. I've been trying to get him on the show for a couple years now, so I was happy that he finally jumped on board, and we had one heck of a conversation. He is the CEO of Trust Ed Leadership Institute and a global authority in helping leaders and entrepreneurs across the world understand trust as it relates to them, then their industry and their business. In today's world where almost everything's transparent and you see people that have not realized that, our ability to have others trust us and for us to trust others is one of the most important dynamics that we can have between other individuals. And I believe that the social capital that we build as individuals and our ability for others to trust us is one of the most important things that we have in today's world when I actually believe that people today have more value placed on social capital than actual capital because of how transparency has flushed out so many of the secrets and lies and hypocrisies of the world that used to be without transparency. And the trust and the individual that you are and the things that you do are have more implications to your business, to your culture, to the value of business than ever before. So David's on the show today to talk about what his business, the Trust Edge Leadership, has done. He created the Enterprise Trust Index from an enormous amount of research and data collections where then he created the trust outlook and has identified eight pillars of trust that he actually has quantified and identified so that way you can then not just take trust as a gut instinct but then be able to put some tangible characteristics to it. And he wrote a book called The Trust Edge back in 09. And like I said, he's one of the grandfathers of this because of how early on he started realizing that no matter what is going on in business, 
Trust is the currency. As you started your company, you, you had to have your spouse or significant other trust you. You had to win the big client to help you get off the ground. You had to get investors. It's all about trust and your ability to follow through with your word as you continue to grow your company. The trust that is built into your culture of people making sure that you can get the jobs done that everybody relies on each other as you're trying to figure out the next stage of the business, whether you're selling to a third party your employees, everything is literally based on trust. It is the currency of business and life. So the best thing that you can do is understand these eight pillars and then what you can do to make sure that you're intentionally moving towards trust building activities with all the stakeholders that are in your life. David has tons of experience to be speaking to this. He works with Fortune 100 companies, global governments that he will be talking about, sports teams, you name it. He has worked with them because the biggest and the best institutions in the world crack and crumble with a lack of trust, which we all know in today's world. So do yourself a favor, listen in, understand the eight pillars of trust and what you can be doing today to change your business and life into something that you're proud of and want to be a part of. If you want to intentionally grow the value of your business so that way you can engineer the outcome and the life that you want with your business, check out one of our two-day boot camps about how to intentionally grow the value of your company with the end in mind using the five principles so you can understand what do you want from your business and why, what are the different financial targets that you have, and how do you grow the value of your business, understand all the different exit options and how they impact the value of the business and what your role is going to be like post-closing, and then how to increase the value of your business so you can have as many options and freedom to choose whatever you want so you can have the engineered life that you want. With that being said, I really hope you enjoy this episode with David. Sponsored by Arcona's Growth and Exit Boot Camps. Two days jam-packed with material on the five growth and exit principles and the world of mergers and acquisitions. You'll walk away knowing exactly what steps to take to get your target valuation and your best exit option. Two days at Arcona's Boot Camp will give you the clarity to control the rest of your journey as an entrepreneur. David, how are you doing? I'm doing great. We got a whole lot of Minnesota here where we're both freezing our asses off as uh, it was negative 10 this morning <laughs> as we woke up. And uh, I'm excited and honored to have you on the show because whether you actually know it or not, um, when I was watching your first presentation three-ish years ago, um, I think I just started the podcast and I just was starting to pick up keynote speaking, which you have been doing a lot of for years. And I actually hired the guy, David Mann, who was critiquing you at that point. And he helped me create my five principles as it relates to our business. So it's like literally the foundation of our business is because I saw your presentation. So yeah, you, wow. you, you've, you mean a lot um, in more ways than one. But you know what I, what I was uh, so intrigued with is your book. You, I mean, in my opinion, we're going to get into it, but I think you were ahead of your time with this whole concept of trust. And it's getting some momentum these days. But uh, let's you know give the listeners a little bit of an overview of you, your background, and then how you started the, the whole concepts, and, and then we can dive into it. Well, there's two places to start. One is trust, and one is how we started a business from the basement <laughs> of, an, of an older lady's home with no windows, bathroom, or kitchen, just black mold on the walls, and lived there for two years. Um, that's an entrepreneurial story on its own. But the trust work, you know, you're right. Back, you know, when I started my first business in uh, 1999, I... 
kind of started looking at things. I, I built some leadership curriculum as a part of where I had been before. And, and I started to see things differently than others. And I was like, that's not the issue they think it is. As an example, it's not a leadership issue. They're not following a leader because they don't trust them. It's not a sales issue. They're not buying from the salesperson because they don't trust them. It's not an innovation issue. They're not being creative because they don't trust each other. So they don't share ideas. It's not a diversity issue. Biggest Harvard study would show diversity on its own pits people against each other. Only with trust do they get the benefits of diversity. It's not mm-hmm. a marketing issue. You don't, you know, you amplify marketing only when you increase trust, you increase engagement only when you increase trust. So back then, almost no one was talking about trust. When I did my graduate work on trust, I mean, there was very little yeah, academic research when, when was on that? business that was, trust. I mean, you're, you're way ahead of it. Yeah. And, and, uh, the early 2000s, I yeah, started in 99 and then early 2000s there. And, um, and nothing was out. I mean, not, now you've got all kinds of books and people and Forbes may trust the business word of the year in 2014. And, be, you know, best place to work, I think it was, um, change their engagement survey, throw out engagement and put trust as a number one metric, which we've been arguing for a long time. And so, um, you know, you kind of think back then, very few people are trying, now you're right, it's gaining traction. When I started, I had to prove a lack of trust is the biggest expense. I had to prove trust is not a soft skill. I came in, you know, swinging with the research because now everybody's like, oh yeah, I get it. Now just show me how to build it. You know, it's like, it, it's kind of an interesting jump that happened from, from yeah, when people I started. Just not believing you to now it's actually implementation. Is it weird going from like, we're trying to like sell people on the idea to like not even having to do that at all? It's in fact, I think we're still, sometimes we've been stuck in the, in the still like feeling like we have to when we don't. And, uh, and, and, you know, that's to, to our, our institute here at Trusted Leadership Institute, we still put out one of the biggest studies, maybe the biggest out of, out of uh, North America, at least uh, it's a global study, but on trust and leadership. And that's just because we've always been, we don't want to be this motivational type. We don't want to be this pull it out of your head or anywhere type. We want to back it up. And that starts a little bit with my background of having to prove it. And then, you know, Enron's happening. All these things are, oh, that, oh, it's a trust issue. Well, I don't know. You know, it's like, and, and so um, we still believe in backing up mm-hmm. with research and, and being valid and, and that kind of thing. So, you know, we, we built indexes and we, you know, use research and everything, but, but you're right. A lot of times when I keynote around the world, I don't have to give mm-hmm. so much time on the research. They want to get into how do I build it the fastest? I get it. I know mm-hmm. you're one of the global thought leaders on this. How do we actually build it here? How do I deal with that boardroom situation? How do we, how do we build trust amidst of change? How so do how I, did you know? this become so passionate? That's such a big passion of yours. Yeah. So I think what happened basically was I was being asked to do some kind of speaking leadership curriculum work. I, I, I taught this leadership piece at the U S coast guard Academy, different things. And I started to see it as a trust issue. Whatever people were saying is like, you know, like I said before, it's like, it's not a leadership issue. It's a trust issue. That's not a, and that was all intuitive at first. And so then I, I started thinking about it more. And when I started my grad work right from the beginning, it was organizational leadership, but from the beginning of that, I'm going to look at trust. And so in my you, you do a thesis or a cornerstone capstone piece. But before I ever got there, every paper I wrote, even in the uh, classes, I, I started to t- tweak it toward trust. Oh, yeah, there was cool. a paper on leadership and this, I was like, well, how does trust affect that? Or how does, and then my grad work and that became my, this grad work kind of capstone became interesting to some people um, much more known and smarter than me, but that did catapult me a little bit. 
I grew in passion because of seeing the, the research. And then um, we started using it in companies. It actually worked. We had a lot of people say, well, I've tried this and we tried TrustEdge. And, and the difference was with TrustEdge, we got results. And then, um, you know, the, the book, that was a miraculous, there's a lot of miracles along the way, but the, the, the first book, The TrustEdge, became a, a Wall Street Journal bestseller from this, you know, farm <laughs> kid from Minnesota at no, that, you know, at a time when not, no one was buying books, you know, it was, it was whatever, 2011 or 12 or 10 or whatever after the, everybody's worried about eBooks and everything. And, you know, Simon and Schuster and some others, Penguin, there, there was people interested and, you know, it's kind of, I think it was the biggest buyout of a non-celebrity. So it, it gained some traction for the book that year. But I think what really happened when you say the passion is actually this whole process changed mm-hmm. me. It changed the way I do leadership. It changed the way I think about work and leadership. And and I grew up under great leadership on a farm in Minnesota. I saw the value of character and integrity in some parts of trust. But this really was transformative to me. And that's kind of where the passion now, I'm absolutely passionate. People say, when are you going to talk about something other than trust? <laughs> Never. That, that's when you, you know, know it's your life fashion too, when you, when you can do it every day and you don't get sick of it. And so like for the people that are listening, they go, okay, I get it. But like, you know, you've, you quantified it, like you said. So like maybe kind of go back into like, okay, you got indexes now and you've, you've got research behind it. So where did the research start? And then maybe I don't, whatever way you normally do it from like, okay, here's the research, but then what can you actually do about it? Yeah. I mean, I think the most, you know, some of it, first of all, you're doing research of research and that's how you figure things out and, and see what's out there. And there wasn't much. So then we did some research using this framework. It's actually kind of fun because we're revalidating it again under a, uh, a university is using it to revalidate. Now people have used my framework to write PhD thesis on top of and some of that kind of stuff. But basically I, you know, let me, let me do this for, for listeners because it's hard to go too far mm-hmm. into all the research. Although you can, you can go to trustedge.com. They can go into research. We put it free. You don't even, there's not even a wall to get your email. Mm-hmm. You can just look up research and you can see the newest, newest research there. But maybe to simplify the research, like I've always had to do to help people understand it, I'll give just a couple quick analogies. One, a lock. The only reason we have a lock business is because of a lack of trust. So that's interesting, except for What's the cost of having a lock on anything? That's the cost of trust. Well, the cost of the lock, that's money, but the biggest cost is time. Now I have to open it. And there's a loyalty cost. Now I, you know, to get it, there's efficiencies. So in, in the first half of my research, if anybody has the Trust Edge book, it's on page 20 in a simple infographic. Every time trust increased in an organization, a, you know, attrition went down, costs went down, time to market went down. Um, you innovation went up, loyalty went up. If I think about a team that trusts each other, they'll share ideas, creativity and innovation goes up. If I think of um, the only way to amplify marketing is increased trust in that message, then I can amplify it. If, if I think of um, if, a simple, another simple way of thinking, it would be say, okay, write a, write a text to someone you trust. How long does that take? Now, write a text to someone you don't trust. How long does that take? forevermore. And, and it, it, how are they going to take this? Suspicion, all the opposites of trust, suspicion, mm-hmm. skepticism, and a host of other things. So I guess, you know, the first half of my research without getting into that too deeply, because I think your people do get this, your audience does get it. But that first half of the research was all building the case and noticing the case of a lack of trust really is the biggest cost, the biggest expense of a leader, an organization, a global mm-hmm. government. We're working with, you know, corruption issues in Kenya now. We're work, we've worked with pro sports teams like the Yankees. We've worked with, you know, so, so we've used this around uh, the world, across industry. And, well, we have to contextualize. 
it is always a trust issue and we can solve, I believe without ego, every leadership and organizational issue comes under these eight pillars. So the, you know, they don't come out as pillars in research, they come out as traits, but the first mm-hmm. half was the case. The second half is where it got interesting because it said, if trust is this right. important, how do you actually build it? Is it just what everybody thinks or not? Turns out it was more than people thought. It was different than people thought. You know, I thought it takes a long time to build trust, right? Well, no, in a crisis like 9-11, complete strangers trust each other yeah. in a moment yeah, yeah. they're running the same direction. I thought if I extend more trust to my team, I'll get more out of them. That's true until I extend too much, I can have a problem. I thought confidence was trusted. Be confident. Well, that can lead to arrogance, which isn't trusted. Or maybe a funny one, uh, people say transparency today. Be transparent. And, and it's the business board <laughs> of the decade. Be transparent. And, and of course, some of your kids are so transparent on Facebook, I don't trust them for a second. because confidentiality is also trusted. So the first step was defining it and seeing that it's bigger than it is. And then it was finding these eight traits that make the most trusted leaders. Which is so interesting that you, you like, it's a big, it's a big point that if you, it's such a fine line, because if you do too much of any of those things, it literally is the opposite effect. Yeah. It sure so, can do you, be. so do we want, do you want to go into the eight first? I was going to say, what's yeah, the, let's go into the eight because I, let, let's give an overview and then we can hit okay. on any of them that you'd like. I think there's some that lend to more value for your listeners for the moment. But I, I, you know, one thing to note about these eight is they're relatively co-equal. You could lose in any of them and you'd lose all, but some are more important at certain times, but they're all a part of this. And contextually, they are. Globally, they are. Even though Latin America and Kenya, let's say, might have a bias toward starting with one of the pillars over what America wants to start with, Americans generally, they're all important and how I apply them. So, So here they are. Here's the eight. Eight pillars of trust. Number one, clarity. People trust the clear and they mistrust or distrust the ambiguous. They also mistrust or distrust the overly complex. And this is the problem. You know, whenever we overcomplexify beyond what is needed, we lose clarity, which loses <laughs> trust. People are so proud of being arrogant. They're proud of overcomplexifying. They're proud of saying, I got 50 rocks and 32 of this. And, you know, Acronyms they lose and because you... of elect- <laughs> Exactly. Right. Acronyms. Number two, we can come back to yep, any yep. of these. So, be, you know, be listening. I want to whip through them and then let's come. Number two is compassion. We trust those that have, uh, you know, care beyond themselves. Maybe one of the key words that came out of this pillar was intent. So if, if I don't believe you have intent beyond yourself or intent for me, I have a hard time buying from you. I have a hard time being accountable to you. This, we were talking about conscious capitalism before. This is the challenge and the crisis of capitalism recently is because if, if people don't think you care at all beyond yourself, they have a hard time trusting you and, and, and buying from you and a host of other things. So compassion, it matters. There are several ways we can show it in the marketplace. Some of the key ways, listening well, appreciating. One of the top reasons last year in the study that people leave an organization is not being noted for notable work or appreciated. Some other ways. Number three is character. We trust those that do what's right over what's easy. And, you know, we have a seven-step process for how you drive this into an organization. But individual leaders were marked by, by this idea that they did what was right over what they felt like doing. And that, that was a real critical trait. And, and um, you know, we, we knew character was a part of trust. I thought it was everything at one point. It's not. Because you can look to the next pillar. It's foundational, but number four is competency. And that pillar speaks to the idea that we trust those that 
you know, stay fresh and competent and relevant and capable. This is why I might trust you, Ryan, because I know your character and compassion to watch my kids at the ball game. I may not trust you to give me a root canal. <laughs> yeah, I'm because I'm not a dentist. Exactly. Competence, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. You definitely don't so want that. You have to. So, you know, the word for the, for, for the audience here is, if you're still leading the way you were 30 years ago, I don't trust you. If you're still selling the way you were 10 years ago, I don't trust you. You've got to stay fresh and relevant and capable. And uh, mm -hmm. there's more we could say about that. Number five is commitment. Turns out we found that we trust people that stay committed even in the face of adversity. And if you think of anybody that's left a legacy in your life or history, your first grade teacher, mom, dad, Mandela, Martin Luther King, Jesus, or Joan of Arc, and you found somebody who stayed committed to a cause and they were trusted uh, by those that followed them uh, for it, often to death. A couple things to say about commitment. I can come back to this, actually, how you rebuild trust comes under commitment for those that have ever lost it. The only way to increase trust in a brand is, is kind of build a committed fan base and some things. But commitment breeds commitment. Number six is connection. And that's the ability to connect and collaborate. And that this pillar is critical because, you know, where we find someone that's, if you see an organization, you see a bunch of siloing, or you see an inability to share, whether it's ideas or the printer, <laughs> you have a, yeah. a counterforce to this pillar. And, uh, you know, I sometimes give the example of, uh, you know, in the last decade of the big three automakers where Chrysler said they're going to build the new transmissions, new high performance transmissions on their own, GM and Ford, they never worked together. They're fierce competitors. And they said, we've got to do it first. And they put their R&D departments together for the first time in history, saved some hundred million dollars in 90 days. And they built the, this high-performance 910 speed transmission together. They put it in every GM and Ford that takes one without anybody say, knowing I had no idea but they did it. No. And they did it first. And it was only because they were willing to connect and collaborate. And this doesn't mean we don't have competition. Uh, this doesn't mean we can connect on everything. But in the new economy... People have got to think bigger about connecting and collaborating with others. So that's, that's the connection pillar inside or outside companies. Number seven is contribution. The, uh, this really speaks to contributing results. So the, in fact, the first word out of this research funnel was results. You look for outcomes, performance, results. So, so um, I might trust you. Once again, uh, you know, I might, might trust that surgeon who's, I might like that surgeon because they're compassionate and, and all that. But we go in for amputation, they cut off the wrong leg. <laughs> yeah. We got a problem. So that's, you know, you can have some of the posts, compassion, character, but you got to get results. And that's the problem is we got to contribute results. Um, that's the work of work. The eighth pillar and the final pillar, and we call it the king of the pillars, is consistency. And that, whatever you do consistently, you're trusted for. You talk about a lot of this in your framework. But by the way, people need to think about this because it's for good or bad. The only way to build a reputation is consistency. The only way to build a brand is consistency. And it matters because for good or bad. So if I'm late all the time, you late. will trust me to be <laughs> late, right? I often joke in, in events, if you, if you don't wear enough clothes, I trust you are Kardashian. <laughs> you know, it's whatever you do consistently is what you're trusted for. So sameness is trusted. This is why we trust McDonald's, even if we don't like them. I've had the same burger on six continents. Sameness is, is trusted. And so these are the eight foundational principles. And you know, a couple other words about them. I believe without, I hope, a shred of ego, but a whole lot of research and, and now experience, you can solve every leadership and organizational issue against these eight. And when you do, you've created the common language in your organization to actually be able to solve things. For example, people will say, uh, if they use net promoter score referrals, we got a referral issue. 
No, you don't. Our research would show you never increase referrals with referrals. The only way is increase trust, then you can increase referrals or engagement. You don't increase engagement with engagement. The only way to increase engagement in a team mm-hmm. is increase trust. Uh, communication. People say to me, uh, jokingly, I see you like C's, David. Don't, isn't it ever a communication issue? And the fact is, at the core, it is never a communication issue, maybe in the way they mean it, but as a whole, it's not a communication issue because communication is happening all the time. Clear communication is trusted, clarity. Unclear communication mm-hmm. isn't. Compassionate communication is trusted. Hateful communication isn't. Consistent is, inconsistent isn't. High character is, low character So when they can define against these, they can start to solve the real issue. And of course, under these, then we have a day of each content oh, wow. for each yeah, of yeah. the pillars of specific strategies for how you can be more clear cr- to create alignment. And what, what is one? Because, you, you know, my principles are kind of similar in any kind of, I think, framework it has it where like, because you can't pull any one of these off. If one of them is way off, then the, the whole thing breaks. Like, so there's a probably interdependency or interdependence on all of them. So like, you know, when, as you go through, I'm like, okay, I totally agree with all these, you know, there's, and again, with your research and other people that have come out, like, got it now. So then how do you quantify, like, you know, if you've got an organization, how the heck do you figure out where you sit from different departments, your leadership team? Cause I'm assuming there's like an identify, identify and become aware of where you're at. And then how do you go forward? Well, I can do it in a simple way and I can do it in a, a specific way. So, you know, we, the, the enterprise trust index that we created, we created on 30 years of Accenture data. It's validated questions and it looks at each of the pillars and, and so on. And we have a tr- uh, team uh, trust survey that's simpler. We have a self, sur- you know, self survey of 360 trust edge 360. Any of these surveys or indexes can give some clarity on where you might want to start, uh, especially the company wide one. If you have a company over 200 people, it's valid. That will show you gaps. We've had massive companies that we've saved millions of dollars by showing one specific gap in a pillar. Mm-hmm. Now, Let's pause for your audience and say you don't you're not gonna spend tens of thousands on an index or a study, or you know, obviously this the self or team studies are are much cheaper, but let's just take that out of it and say you had to think about this today. Take these eight pillars. Uh maybe maybe grab the book so you mm-hmm. can get some context around them. Uh or go to the Trust Edge site. We have a hundred and some free videos, you know, on, on YouTube and a host of other places. You can learn a lot without paying us a penny and just get a little grasp of what the eight pillars are. You could also, and we have a, a, a great uh, executive day where we go into this and you really get a good understanding and you get an assessment with that. So that might be interesting. But outside of that, list these eight pillars, clarity, compassion, character, put them on a piece of paper and just think from what you know now, you've been in this short time together with your company and say, hey, what, what pillars are we doing really well? Just let's circle a couple of those. Okay, boom. Where do, your character, we got good character, we got commitment. Now take a look and think, what one pillar, if we strengthen that pillar a little bit, that's our, that's our greatest opportunity. If we can increase that pillar with a specific audience. So you might say, well, clarity, well, you can, clarity is huge. So is it clarity with, within your team? Is it clarity with potential buyers? Is it clarity with expectations? Is it clarity of vision? But just pick one area at first, just an area and just seek to solve that. And, and how do we do that? Well, this is where we get into one of the strategies under clarity. And, and so you can self-analyze. You could just say, what, how, what are we doing well? What's one thing we could do? Let's look at that. Now, how we look at that, I'm going to go mm-hmm. into a very specific strategy, and that is the how, how, how strategy. This idea is really powerful, even though it seems simple. The three most overlooked, underused words that actually take an idea to an action 
that actually drive strategic clarity are not why. I agree with Sinek. I love the why in many ways. But remember, even he says, start with why. Don't stay there forever. And there's <laughs> right. a lot of people that are going you know, right off the cliff singing kumbaya with their great why, and they're not doing a darn thing. And you have other people saying, well, I agree with Collins. We've got to get the right who's on the bus. You can, you can have a bus full of great who's partying all night long, not getting a thing done mm-hmm. either. So you, those start with why, get some great who's. But the real key to getting an idea to an action this idea is getting clarity around that gives hope because I can do something about it today or tomorrow. So the key is asking down, not, not sideways for Morehouse, but down on one thing. So I want to have a better culture in my company. Oh. Okay. How are you going to do, how are you going to do that? I'm going to appreciate people more. Do I trust them? No chance. How are you going to appreciate people more? Uh, we're going to write notes. Do I trust them yet? No. Until someone tells me they're going to write a note every day for the next 90 days, I don't trust mm-hmm. them. And it's the same thing with weight. You know, I talk about somewhere, I, don't, I didn't write it in the book, but when I lost 52 pounds in five and a half months in 2011, um, and now I've kept it off. It's not, because of, <laughs> okay. yeah, it's not a fitness idea that I got. It was this how, how, how idea that I used. And that was, how am I going to stay, get fit, even though I'm flying and on the road and all this stuff. And it was, uh, so you know, I talk to people around the world and they're like, well, all you got to do is eat less, exercise more. Well, duh, that's not clear duh, enough for me. Right? <laughs> yeah. So how am I going to do that? So I put an idea down. Okay. How am I going to take in less calories? Okay. A doctor came up to me one time. He said, you know, most men in America, if they just wouldn't drink their calories, they could eat the same and lose 50 pounds in a year. I said, wow, that's interesting. I knew it wouldn't be true. I don't drink a lot of alcohol or soda, or whatever, but I started thinking, okay, I'm just not, let me just, that's a specific thing. Cause I can look at it. Is there a calorie in it? No, I can drink it. Right. So now doesn't mean I have never drank in a calorie since then, but for 90 days, a quart, I, we're always in 90 mm-hmm. day increments that the two magic timeframes are daily and 90 days for team and people, personal change. Doesn't mean if you're building a university, you don't have to think longer term. I'm saying if you want to, the, the key timeframes are not a year, a year's way too far out for most change, but daily and 90 day increments. And I can go into that, but basically, so I'm how, how, how I'm saying, okay, how am I going to take in less calories? Okay. I'm not going to drink. Okay. How am I going to do that? I'm going to do this. Okay. But when I get in the plane, I have a habit of drinking a Coke. Okay. How am I going to do that? I'm going to automatically say Fresca. There's no calories in a Fresca. Okay. How, until I got a how that I can act on, I don't stop. Hmm. And so there's lots of, you know, more I can give you on that, but it is out. You can, you might take seven hows, but we've had massive, the second biggest healthcare organization in North America said they had basically turned around because of using this strategy when we taught it to them seven years ago. How, 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 and, and you stop having meetings where people aren't going to do something today or tomorrow. So personally, it works like that. You just do how until you are going to do something. When we do this in teams, like we do every 90 days, teams get together and they put how strategies down. The final how needs to include the who, when, where Got it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. every time. Because, because, you know, even for me, if I say, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to exercise, I don't know. It's, if I don't say it's 530 in the morning, I'm not doing it. You got to have a specific time. If I don't know where, I'm either going to go to the gym or I'm going to run out the door. I'll do neither. And the, the other big problem is people have all this co-leadership these days and co-leadership is terrible. Co-leadership, the data will say, if you have more than one person on a final task, you have 50% less chance of it ever getting done. You've got to have a final person. Collaborative leadership is great, but co-leadership isn't. So we want that final how to include the who, when, where, if needed. Individually, of course, it's all on us, and that's fine. So then, you know, when you look at the you know organizations and the structures of organizations, it stems from the top. So, like you know, when you go and you look at an organization. How often do you just see the ripple effect coming from the, the him or her at the top 
And they're the ones that just, they, you know, you've heard the, you know, like hires like, and then I mean, mm-hmm. I always, I mean, we had major, you know, culture toxic problems when I started in the family business before we turned around 50, 60 people. And it just, it's just painful to go through that. And you go through and you're kind of quantifying all this with your gut. So like, how, like, where do you, like, what, what is the leadership dynamic? Do you see? Well, I, you know, there's a lot of ways I can answer that. I'll start this way. If you can, you always want to start at the top. You want to start with the leadership team. That's what we want to do. We want to do a, for in our case, just to get a common language and start things moving. We want to do a leadership day, an executive day. Uh, so they get the common language and they see the impact of trust. Not in this way of we're coming in because nobody trusts anybody, but they just see, hey, the biggest value we, we can be is be the most trusted in our industry. And when they see kind of the case and see how to solve against it. So that that's where we want to start. What do you do with, what do you do? The, doesn't always, a, there's poison. I think we were probably about to close to saying the same thing. We're like, I mean, what do you say to the, the, the whether it's an owner listening to this and they're, they're going, you know what, you know, it's, they just have that one person or like, it just, it's so difficult to just deal with it. Right. I mean, so is it possible to even turn it around or, you know, is it, it have you ever heard the, I don't know if you ever heard the gallon of gasoline or the gallon of milk. You ever heard this David? If you put a, a gallon, or if you put a drop of milk in a gallon of gasoline, nothing happens. But if you put a drop of gasoline in a gallon of milk, the whole thing's spoiled and finding those people and like identifying, like, you know, is it worth turning around? Is it like possible to like coach these people out or like what point is there action where you have to like really revamp it all? The first thing I would do is look at myself and people there's leaders on here thinking it's everybody else. (laughs) And, and the problem is they need to look at themselves. So that's, that's, first, because I have people, I'm standing in the back of big events, you know, after a keynote on trust, and they'll have all these people go, I love that trust message. I agree with that. My boss should have been there. <laughs> my spouse should have yeah, been there. Yeah. My, my teenagers need that stuff. So the first thing is you got to really look at it. Now, the truth is there is poison out there. So people will say to me, well, you got that compassion pillar. I bet you, you think you should never fire anybody. I'm like, no, the most compassionate thing you can do for the organization is mm-hmm, fire people sometimes. Mm-hmm. It's terribly difficult, but it, it, it can be the most compassionate thing. So, so um, one thing, one answer to this is we have an accountability process we've created because people don't understand accountability. I'll ask people around the world, you know, um, they have accountability as a value. And so I'll say, well, how do you hold people accountable here? I see it's a value. How? Uh, well, uh, you know, uh, accountability stuff. And so, so, so you have to have a process for how you actually hold accountable because a lot of leaders want to follow, uh, want to fire people, but they haven't been clear about expectations. They haven't given them a way to win. They haven't coached them at all. They haven't done any of that. But so if you, you know, do the work of leadership and you give clear expectations and you, you know, help them, you know, and coach them and some of the things then you might have the right to replace them and all that mm-hmm. kind of thing. And that might be the right thing to do, but just make sure you're doing the right thing, the work of leadership first, because then in the way you trust you, you let them go. That's really critical because the way you fire is how you lose or gain a whole lot of trust in an organization. Sorry about this. Um, well, and I was, I was just going to say too, I mean, like, you know, if you're doing it the right way and it's not like, like you said, consistency and clarity, and I mean, it all ties into all those stuff, because if you just had no expectations, and you fired someone, then no one trusts you. I mean, but also, yeah. um, 
I've seen it where like there's someone that should have been fired and wasn't, and that actually impacts the leader more than. So I'll tell you about a team right here in our hometown of Minneapolis. So the vice president's good. Nine directors below the vice president. Eight of them are fantastic. One of them is a sloth. (laughs) Terrible. Who does everybody hate? Not the sloth. They hate the vice president because he's not doing his job Mm -hmm. of getting rid Mm -hmm. of that sloth. So that's, that's the problem right there of, of really doing the work of leadership. You know, I often say my, my older brother, Kent is an economist. He runs a couple of companies, brilliant guy, but he, he often says something that's very true. We're in a more critical world than we've ever been in without the ability to critically think. Mm. And the, the deal is as a leader, you are going to be critiqued. So you got to do what's right anyway. And that's the work of leadership. And people want to be leaders, but not take the weight of leadership. And that doesn't work. Not for good ones. You know, I often say, if you want to be critiqued for a living, give a speech. You've been critiquing me every minute for the last little bit. You go, oh, you got the wrong <laughs> shoes. You, got, you should have worn a tie. Something's wrong. Or write a book or lead anything. You're going to get critiqued, so you got to do what's right anyway. That, and that's the work of, of dealing with the toxins you're talking about. And there are toxins. So I'll, I'll say two other things about that. One, you got to deal with the toxin. But two, just make sure you've started with yourself to make sure you've really checked yourself. And then you do have to deal with it because both are at play here. We have to think about real look at ourselves with assessing ourselves well. And then you got to deal with it because there are people you got to. Oh, and you're so right. And like, it's interesting because as, as we went from our, like, cause I mean, I, I literally did this in the family business without knowing all your stuff, because I mean, when you're replacing, I mean, kind of, it was from the top down, bottom up. I mean, like just the whole thing was in, we went from a toxic culture to like, I like to say like the Zappos or like the Brene Brown where like you, it, it was fun as hell to go in there because there was the flow between everybody. There is, there was a lot of trust, but it took so much work to get there. And one of the things that I see as a challenge, David, where you have, you know, a baby boomer that like, or a business owner that has unbelievable charisma and everybody loves that person, but they haven't had the ability to take that genetic, you know, that gen- whatever you want to call it, those traits and disperse those throughout the organization without themselves. So like literally, mm-hmm. I mean, I, I bet you 50% of the companies where like they say, okay, you've got a, you know, let's say it's a hundred person company. And if that person left, everybody would leave. Right. But, they, but, yeah. but it, it stays together because that person, that owner is going in there and saying, okay, hey, David, how's it going? And they're mentoring you, but then they're going and they're like essentially playing whack-a-mole yeah. with non-trust <laughs> issues. Does that make sense? Yeah. Like, I, yeah. I, yeah. I, I don't know if you got anything. Well, I, the only thing I would say is the only way to go beyond yourself is systemize. And look, I've had the same challenge, but you, every, you know, how do you systemize beyond yourself? I'm looking right now at this issue of really hiring a, a general manager president beyond me. And it's work because, you know, it's really important transition from the founder like me to have someone else that's going to hold accountable and going to share vision and all these kind of things. So I see it. It's taken me, we've been looking at this for a year and we're finally kind of close on somebody, but it's, it's like, I don't know what you can ask me that, you know, <laughs> next year, what, what's it going to be like, but there has to be, but the only, you know, a couple things that are really critical are systemizing. And when I say systemizing, what I especially mean is systemizing decision-making. So what there is a lot of out there, and we have a mission 
developing trusted leaders and organizations around the world. We have this vision to create cultures of trust uh, around the world. We have five values in our company. We have uh, seven virtues of how, what we hire on. We have some of these frameworks, but what, what I really want to help people see is those are all good and they can start to build a culture if you communicate them enough and if you actually measure them and if you actually appreciate them or reward them. But what we want to do to, to scale, even in our small companies, we have, you know, some, several hundred, you know, certified facilitators, but inside corporate, we have, you know, it's less than 10. So it's, it's, um, we want to scale decision-making. So we're making decisions the same way. So that's why I go from values to creating virtues of what do we, how do we, you know, how do you make that decision consistently, but both play to, to each other values or virtues and having the right values and virtues, it helps us make decisions on that instead of, you know, taking so long to decide or making it on other things. I mean, here's an example. Uh, no, I was just saying that I, I'll let you go. Uh, if you can think about that example, I, I think it's interesting in how you're having values and virtues and having that, like you, you nailed it when you say systematized decision-making, right? Like, so like when you have, I mean, when you have a customer that's a pain in the ass and you want to fire them or that, oh, for some reason you over, like you overbuild them and they paid it. Like how is the AP person going to be dealing with or, or accounts receivable person going to deal with that compared to the, the owner? Or like, you know, there's just, how do you, you know, systematize that I think is a great way to, to put that. And Ray Dalio, I mean, that's what his whole book principles is, right? I mean, he's, he's a, yeah. an, you know, anal, uh, analytical algorithm machine, but like, it doesn't make it easy. So like maybe give your definition of virtues and like how, like what, and give your example. Okay. Well, I'll give one example. So I started seeing, uh, I don't know where to go here. Values are how we, the way we do things. So first of all, I'll start with an example there. One of our values is, is excellence of service. So, so we have, we try to put a phrase to it instead of just a word. Like people say integrity. Well, what do they mean? If you don't have integrity, you're not even not going to work with you. So what does it really mean? But Let's take the, this, the excellence idea. So when, when I was writing my first book or kind of a publisher came to me, I, this is, this, this works in teams too, but in a, you know, is my decision. I, you know, it's really hard to get a publisher, by the way, <laughs> big publisher, your first time it, it was really, I mean, you can self publish, but it's hard uh, to get a publisher. Well, I finally got this New York publisher interested and then I had this dinky publisher interested and I thought, well, I don't probably not going to get anybody, but, but what a New York publisher. Wow. That could go places. So the New York publisher said, we'll do, we think we'll probably do the book, but we'll do it, you know, soft cover and we'll do it on, uh, on the yellowish paper, like the novels and it's a little cheaper, but you know, it'll, you, Hey, New York publisher. And then, uh, the little dinky publisher said, I'll do it the way you want it. I'll do it on that expensive paper. I'll do it hardcover on the nicest binding. We'll put a ribbon in it like you wanted, blah, blah, blah. Make it really cool. Two colors. There, it was a really unique, uh, the first book. And of course we said, well, this cheap, cheap one doesn't go with our values. This excellent book might not hardly get beyond my friends and family, but it's with our values. It feels trusted and it's on brand. So I could go to bed every night feeling great because I made the decision on my values, even though it's like, oh, it may not be the way to, to reach the world as fast. Now, of course, the miracle happened. The biggest publisher in the world picks it up from them two years later on the biggest buyout of a non-celebrity. But if that never, that happened only because we stuck to our values, and if it didn't happen, you know what? We still made the decision by our values and could sleep well at night. So that's, that's decision-making values. On virtues, the reason I add virtues, and I did this on my own, and now I've done it in big companies that you would know help them do it, but virtues is a higher level 
of how we act. So values are those decision-making pieces. And there's other frameworks like Dalio talks about and others that can help you make decisions more consistently, just putting principles into place for basically everything that you can systemize. But the virtues piece is, is also interesting because, you know, I hired, I often did hiring well as far as character, but I wasn't always hiring well for what we needed in a f- kind of fast paced, fast growing, tiny organization. And so one of them I, I figured out was a figure it out mentality. So I used to joke, this is, this sounds a little harsh, but with this, this, this uh, assistant I had at the time, like, okay, you only have 20 questions to ask me this month. Are you sure you want to ask that one? <laughs> because I'd kind of like, I want to be like, you got to think if you can Google it, do that first. And then, you know, <laughs> I like um, it. I, I, so, question quota. I like that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it was kind of like, it was kind of like, do I want to coach her? That sounds like I don't want to want to coach or help people. Not true. I want to coach them. I want to pour into them, but I really, I, I have to have people in that fast paced, small organization that are figured out mentality. It's kind of funny when you're hiring the next person to replace that role. My chief operating officer, who I totally trust, fantastic guy. I said, let's just try this. Um, because this other lady was just on a kind of trial piece, the new one. Uh, she was actually an intern in college and I wasn't thinking I would hire her. She was um, kind of young for the role and whatnot, but I said, try this. I said, first of all, we have uh, a uh, basically a colleague of ours, um, a subcontractor, but she's very involved in our business and her mother died. So it's a maiden name. Okay. This is tragic at first. And, uh, and she has already left to her mom's funeral. And that's a different last name that I don't know because it's her mother's side. I want flowers to be there at the funeral before she gets there tomorrow. Now you, you've got the deal, right, Ryan? Mm -hmm. Yep. You've got the deal. So I want you to do it because he's fantastic. He was fantastic. Said right now, time yourself from now till when you're ordering and shipping them to the right address. You don't know anything she doesn't know. You don't know the name or anything right either. No, I don't. But don't do it. Don't do it. Just get to that point. It took him, he, he timed it, 15 minutes. <laughs> so now give, now give it to the, uh, our new possibility, you know. Um, and, and she had the same information, probably less knowledge from history, and, and tell her to do it. But just watch her, you know, come back. Just kind of watch. How long does it take her to actually do it? He called me back. It took her 11 minutes. I'm fired, <laughs> aren't I? <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> and and the, the bottom line was for that next assistant, I knew I needed figure it out mentality. I need someone who could think on their own and move forward on their own. So now this other assistant, I, I, I've had a lot of great people. And, and just to think back to that other person, she was phenomenal in other ways. And we kind of moved her position when you're able to do that. That's great. But in that role of my assistant, I'm flying 200 flights a year. I need someone, I'm not available always in in my role as much as I even want to coach and help. So one of our seven virtues is a figure it out mentality. I'll give you one more. It's be the same on stage as you are off stage. Mm -hmm. And what what happens is you you might think, well, that's just integrity, right? Well, the problem is it's not as actually, it's just as stickier as a phrase. And, you know, I see people in our business that speak on these big stages and then I see them drunk afterwards at the bar. They talk about success. They don't live it. They talk about relationships and I find out they're divorced eight times or whatever. So <laughs> I said, oh my God, okay, we, my, we, we, our world my, needs less of the people that are <laughs> motivational speakers that their life is a disaster. Like, yeah, <laughs> exactly. So my, my stage is an author, actual stage, but everybody in my team knows they have a stage. It might be on the phone. 
It might be, it, 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 but there is a stage and we want to be the same on and off stage. And this is why people ask me sometimes, I'm on these big, I was just seeing 10,000 people not very long ago at this opening this event in Bangkok, biggest leadership event of its kind. And someone came up to me that had seen Tony Robbins and they said, so what do you do to get ready before you go you on? jump on a little what trampoline. Do do? And I- <laughs> yeah. yeah do, do you do this? I've heard of speakers, they rub their head. I've heard of people do this. And I said, I just try to be exactly the same all the time. I just talk to people because that's what I do. I, I connect. I, I, I want to be the same guy on stage as I am off stage. So I don't do any weird things, Superman pose to look different than I would, you know, in person. <laughs> yeah. I, I want to be the same. And, and, and by the, by the same token, um, and this happened to me, I'd spoken at an event in uh, San Antonio or Dallas, Texas. Then I flew to San Antonio. Then I flew back through Dallas on my way back to Minnesota. And by the time I went back through on the connecting flight in Dallas, that conference was done. Those people that I had spoken to two days earlier were on that flight. I had no idea. Mm-hmm. They saw me when I slammed my fingers into the overhead bin. And thankfully, I acted the same in that moment on stage <laughs> as off stage. But I always thought, because right after that, I looked at someone and they looked at me like, you were our speaker too last week, weren't you? And I'm like, yeah. <laughs> and I could actually be like, okay, because you know, I'm not always perfect for sure. But, but, um, that, you want to be the same as you can on stage so, and off. So my takeaway for myself is so curse on stage. So that way, when I would have cursed, then you're the same guy. Yeah. So that's the, you know, those aren't any real example for your company or somebody else's, but they are, if you can get sticky with virtues and values and other guiding principles for for things that happen all the time so that everybody can basically be making the decision the same Mm -hmm. way. I think, I mean, it's so important what you, what you said too. And I think it becomes, it comes down to being aware of how you're making decisions and how many people do you know, David, that are actually conscious and aware of how they're making decisions. Yeah. I don't know. I think it's just, yeah, it's just random. And, but that was probably me in the first, you know, 10 years or whatever, seven years, just trying to, mm-hmm. you know, make it as fast as I can and try to pay rent. And I remember those early years of starting my first business, you know, no windows. I didn't know it was illegal to live in a windowless basement, <laughs> Bat- no bathroom, no kitchen. Lisa and I, you know, shared 86 year old Clara Miller's 5610 Matterhorn Drive, Fridley, Minnesota. And I figured if I could make $700 a month, we could pay our rent you know, or pay our urgent bills in that little, you know, <laughs> terrible place. But, you know, two years later, we moved out. That's awesome. And so, you know, when you're thinking about as we're, as we're kind of making this actionable for the, the, the listeners, what are the, what should someone do to quantify this? If, I mean, if they, and you actually mentioned earlier, I don't know if we got in the time for it, but, you know, rebuilding trust. I think maybe if we got time to touch on that and then figure out, okay, how does someone actually move forward to build the trust, whether it's rebuilding or starting mm-hmm. to be aware of this? Yeah. One thing I'd say about rebuilding trust, I think the uniqueness is just that it's not the apology. You never rebuild trust on the apology. People people say, I'm sorry. You know, I mean, so I had a friend in the Netherlands. He came to America. He'd been here a couple of weeks. I said, what do you know is different in America? He was a CEO. And he said, well, the first thing I noticed in America is you got a bunch of lying apologizers. <laughs> he said, I said, really? What do you mean? He said, he said yeah. yeah. They, they say, I'm sorry I'm late. No, you're late every time, dude. I'm sorry I didn't get that done. No, you never get that done. So 
we we don't re, it doesn't mean we don't need an apology to open the door but the only time you the only way to rebuild trust is to make and keep a new commitment so that's just comes under the commitment pillar the other thing to think about in all this is is it really about trusted or trustworthiness and the the truth is the most deceptive person is the one who uses these pillars and manipulates them to appear trusted when in fact they're not worthy of it what we're really going is going for is trustworthiness and so the next step I would take if this piques your interest at all, and this is this is the overall, is we have a case for trust. I can prove out that a lack of trust is the biggest expense you have and I have. And it doesn't matter if it's with your spouse, friend, or partner. It doesn't matter if it's in your business or in a global government. It's always, it's always a trust issue at the core. That is the root cause, not something else. There's a way to build it. These eight pillars are... I believe comprehensive. It doesn't mean I think I know everything. It doesn't mean a lot of other great work, yours and others fit with them. It's, it just means you can define it against these eight. And then we have a lot of strategies we teach for how do you build these eight, the spa method for increasing compassion in an organization or care, the how, how, how method, the alignment process to increase clarity, the whatever it is. So some ways we do it. So the simple, if you're, if people are just going to listen to the podcast is look at those eight pillars. Celebrate what you're doing well. Think of one you can start to work on and how, how, how that until you're so clear you can do something starting today or tomorrow. If you want to go deeper with us, trustedge.com. Our next executive event is April 14th. Uh, as far as the one at the, uh, uh, the, the Blue in Minneapolis uh, at the Mall of America, it's a great event to see more in a full day with other se- you know, senior leaders. But beyond that, we have a whole host of resources at TrustEdge, all the research, videos, and other things to get a deeper understanding. And you can get more of the tools like the DMA strategy for clarity and some of these ways you can apply it. But that, you know, I would keep pressing in and learning so that you see trust as the issue it is, as it is, that it is, so that you understand it's a function of these eight pillars. And so that you're getting clear to a final how that you can start to solve those issues starting today or tomorrow. What is your, what is, what is like an, an exact, like if you're an owner that wants to like get your team on board, cause like, like, let's say you've, you've, you've self-assessed, say, like, okay, I got this, like I, as in like comprehend it. Right. But then that now mm-hmm. I need to get my executive team on board. Is it work mm-hmm. with that, exa- with that owner first before you, it, before you jump in? Cause I'm just thinking like, if I would have originally brought my first executive team in, you go, okay, well half those people suck and they're going to have to go. Yeah. Or do you wait to rebuild it? Or like, how do you get the, the, the team involved? Well, I've seen it both ways. I've seen going after the, the senior leaders first, and there's a certain way of doing that. And I've seen people saying, no, we can't start there. We're going to start down here and show it works and show a different thinking of trust works because you can lead up, down, and sideways. And so you do, it's always easiest to start at the top because they have the most given leadership, mm-hmm. but you you can start anywhere. And we've seen pockets of organizations, wow, and then finally see people see what's happening there and it exposes oh, the yeah, rest. Cool. Or cool, it, cool. It, yeah, it, so it does work. But with leaders, this is what you, there's two things you need to do to get buy-in, at least two. I'll give two in this short time. One is, you need to show the case, and that's the financial impact of a lack of trust in a certain area. And it doesn't, like, I'm thinking of, I was with the, uh, the senior leadership of one of the biggest, I think, fifth, sixth biggest company in the world, $300 billion organization. And we're at a probably, you know, I'm stuck in the boardroom for two days with, you know, nine or 14 people or whatever. And I could see very, like, very quickly, they don't just not trust each other. They don't like each other. <laughs> and, and by the way, I often say, is it better to be liked or trusted? Is it different? Well, 
It's a whole lot different. People say they buy from people they like. No, they don't. They buy from people they trust. I've got a friend I like a lot. Watch the game with him. I wouldn't go into business with him in a million years. <laughs> I don't yeah. trust him. And, and in the way I, I talk about trust, you'll almost always be also liked. But as far as this goes, I said, stop it in the first hour together. I said, stop it. What do you think a lack of trust is costing this organization? Just a lack of trust in this room. Everyone in here is worth $20 million at least. What's a lack of trust? You're called to lead this organization. What's a lack of trust costing right here? To that question, they answered in two minutes, we think a half billion dollars. Of course, they were wrong. It was way more. But you can look at, you can actually define it. You asked before, how do you define trust? Well, if I look at one company we had to, we, you know, they said we saved them two to four million in attrition costs alone. If you can see the trust work, let's just say attrition costs two and a half times hiring, uh, depending on the industry, you can see how trust affects that. Some things like engagement and speed in certain areas, they're harder to define. But one uh, big company, Fortune 50 company, said we helped them gain 11% market share by changing how they dealt with trust issues, you know, increased trust. We had a company that uh, you can define it against engagement scores, a massive company that you would know. We increased engagement scores over three years by 400 points. They'd never had an increase until then. You know, so you can measure these things against how you use trust sales. Like normal metrics, right? In whatever division, like customers. Yeah, tripled sales in 90 days using this. And, and so if you use these things, and of course you want to get more and more actionable, but today I've given a little bit of the eight pillars. I've given the how, how, how idea and a couple other ideas so they can start to start to think about them. People out there, your brilliant audience has their own ideas. If they want more ideas, you know, we have them too for how you build those pillars. So I said, uh, to an- in answer to your question, I said, um, you know, you got to show the case for trust to get the C-suite interested or your leadership interested. The other thing you have to do is give the why. And this is the place for the why. You know, strategically, people asking why all the time, it's like, we know the why. Saying, you know, overusing the why today, like people do, it, it, it's not always the, the most important thing. But the place you need the why is for a new initiative or for change. And if you can show the C-suite or that senior leader or whoever needs to buy in the why, like I often talk about, what if, if you can give five whys to the senior leader, they might consider it. And that's what you might do around trust. And I can certainly do that because I can show the research of, if you don't think about this differently, if you don't act on trust, you're going to go. Well, and, and what's interesting about quantifying it too, David, is like, most most owners know what is the weakest part of their business, whether it's customer service, whether it's sales, whether it's admin. I mean, like there's these eight functional areas of a business. They know usually what's the, what's suffering and there's ways to quantify that too. Yep. Absolutely. So what's the best way? So you, you got the, the link that we've put in there. What's the best way to get in touch with you? I mean, you've given the website. What's the... I think the best way is trustedge.com. You can go there. You can email. You can call. We love phone calls. We talk to people. We don't just uh, put them through a form, but you can go. You can fill out a form or whatever, but we love to help. Our mission is all around developing trust and leaders and organizations around the world. You know, you can you can read the Trust Edge. You can come to an executive event, but just uh, come uh, learn more at trustedge.com. We have a you know, pretty substantial like YouTube and LinkedIn and some of these other places like people do. But uh, yeah, you can find it all at Trust Edge. Thank you so much for coming on the show. I had a blast. Thanks, Ryan. 
I hope you enjoyed that episode with David. I can't tell you how much I believe that trust is the currency of our life. There is no purpose to what we're doing. If we don't have good relationships, if we don't trust others, it brings so much peace when you know that others can rely on you and you can rely on others. If you want to intentionally build a company that you enjoy, that is valuable, and that gives you a lot of options, check out one of our two-day boot camps based on the five principles and our two case studies. It's going to teach you all the value building techniques, all the different exit options and how they work so you can intentionally go get what you want. So I hope you enjoyed the episode. Give me a rating on iTunes if you got the time and you're willing to deal with the hassle. Other than that, I will see you next week.